one of the things that the Lord has really broken me over, and uh, you'll see it in the upcoming newsletter, but has been over barrenness of ministry. And it's Isaiah 54 was the passage that really struck me, where Isaiah takes the imagery of barren Sarah and talks about how he turns that into fruitfulness. And uh, Paul uh, uses that in Galatians chapter 4 as well. And uh, not only the barrenness in my own life, but seeing barrenness in the church and seeing barrenness in the church in general in America. And there's exceptions, I think, in all three areas, but I long to see a moving of God's Spirit in our midst. And I think the only person who can change barrenness into fruitfulness is the Spirit of God. We cannot do that on our own. And uh, I long to see uh, us uh, walking in the Spirit so that in everything we're doing, we are exalting God so when the heathen look on, they could say, there is something going on here that is unusual. It is not something they're going to look to us for, but they're going to look to the glory of God. And I think this passage has a great deal to say about uh, lifting up the glory of God in our city. And I want to look, first of all, at the negative. Uh, some of the negative things that can happen when men are burdened for revival <clears throat> and burdened for a moving of God's Spirit. The first one is opposition. And you can count on it. You can see it all through the passage, but in verse 19 it says, Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now here were upstanding citizens, and the question might come, why was there opposition to them? From a, <laughs> a human perspective, you could say, Nebuchadnezzar was mad because of their civil disobedience, but I think we need to ask, why was this crisis precipitated? Why the idol? Why that big statue? Why at this particular time? And I am convinced it was because Satan was very, very upset with what was happening in the empire of Babylon. There was a moving of God's Spirit throughout that empire that was preparing things through numerous conversions that were later to be recorded. You read through uh, the book of Ezra, and you read through uh, Esther, and you will see there was a moving throughout the empire. In Esther, for example, this is later... And years down the road, it says that there were many Jews, uh, many Gentiles who became Jews. In Ezra, it talks about the law of God being implemented uh, throughout the empire. And when God's Spirit moves upon a land or upon a city or upon a, a church, there is going to be opposition from Satan. If you long for revival to break forth in our own congregation, you're going to see opposition. Opposition from without, opposition from within. It can come from the leadership. It can come from the membership. But Satan is going to do his utmost to hinder the uh, proclamation of God's Word and hinder the moving of God's Spirit in the hearts of His people. If he can get people to resist the Spirit or grieve the Spirit uh, in some way or quench the Spirit's moving, he will seek to do so. And I am convinced that there is something big afoot in, in, in Omaha. I'm not sure exactly what God is going to do, but I can see that God is moving amongst many of the leaders of churches and other ministries in this city where they have been given a similar burden from God and a similar faith that God is going to be doing something uh, powerful in this city. And there have been many, much opposition that's come as a result. Uh, several pastors, I think, have been destroyed in recent uh, years through satanic attacks, uh, some through uh, illness. Uh, some have been uh, resisted through attacks on finances or attacks against integrity. And I have felt very heavily the attacks of Satan. And you guys need to be involved in prayer, lifting up the leaders of our city.
not just of this congregation, but the leaders of the churches throughout the city, because I'm convinced there is a moving of God's Spirit that is going to be breaking forth on this city in the near future. Now, later on in the book, uh, Daniel becomes very explicit about the warfare that goes on in the heavenlies as he describes Michael and all of the angels fighting against the demonic hosts. Here, we only have some of the outward opposition, the outward manifestations, but it is the demonic. We need to keep that in mind that is behind this. And I go through in the outline there and show some of the different ways in which we too, in our day, can receive opposition. It may be the attitudes uh, that are out there. Verse 19, Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, our first application might be to think about people outside the church whose attitudes have become hostile against Christianity, but you know our attitudes can have a powerful effect as well upon the success or the failure of this congregation. If we allow bitterness and anger to grip our hearts, it can destroy the work at Trinity. Paul warned us about allowing uh, anger to give a foothold to Satan. He said in Ephesians 4.26, Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give an opportunity to the devil. And so he can stir up the attitudes of people in opposition. It may be verbal uh, opposition. Uh, threats outside the church, threats from within the church, and verses 13 through 19 deal with verbal opposition. It may be political opposition. Here Nebuchadnezzar hands down a decree against these three men, and if you look through the Scriptures, you will see many, many examples. In the book of Acts, it's specifically attributed to Satan, as it is in the book of Revelation, where Satan specializes in, in, in working in governments to seek to oppose the moving of his spirit. And that may lead to physical persecution. Persecution seems to accompany the moving of God's Spirit. Read sometime in Galatians 4 when you look at the analogy between uh, that which is produced of the flesh, the Ishmaels, against the Isaacs, and the persecution that happens, the opposition that goes in between there. Now, I think sometimes there's a side benefit to that. Uh, I've seen out in Ethiopia how persecution can actually work to the advantage of the church as the church, uh, the hypocrites leave and the church becomes purified and becomes much stronger. Uh, so there can be positive benefits that come, that come from that. But it's my prayer that we would see it as being so worthwhile uh, to have the power and the presence and the touch of God upon our ministries, we would be willing to face any opposition that Satan might throw against us. And that's the second point I want to look at. If we want God's glory in Omaha, we need to trust God's power to do the impossible. Look at verse 17. If that is the case, say these three men, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. He is able to deliver us. Now, why could they make a statement like that? Had there ever been a case in the Scriptures where God's people had been delivered out of a fiery, fiery furnace? I don't think so. I don't see any evidence. And yet, they believed in a God of miracles, and they were convinced that nothing is too hard for God. R.J. Rushdoony says that there are four things about the book of Daniel that make it extremely uh, 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 something that the liberals do not like, uh, very offensive to them. He says the first thing that makes it offensive is that it presents a God who cannot be manipulated. It is a God who is sovereign, who controls all things, who is self-sufficient. 
You know, the idea, and I've heard this so many times amongst Christians, that God has no hands except for our hands, is liberal to the core. And this is a powerful book that dynamites any such notion. And it is offensive to the liberals. The second thing that makes it offensive is predictive prophecy. Because liberals have said that implies that all of future history is predestined. It's certain. And so they say there can be no predictive prophecy. Uh, The third thing that makes it offensive is the portrayal of providence as covering all of the tiny, minute details of life. And Rush Tooney says the fourth thing that makes it offensive are its miracles. And this is an incredibly outstanding miracle that liberals to this day have scoffed at. Now, evangelicals would never be caught scoffing at the miracle as it's recorded there, but what you do find many times is uh, Christians scoffing at the idea that such miracles could occur in our own day. They do not have the faith to believe that God can work miracles in our day, and I want our congregation to be stirred up to believe in the miraculous, even if it has never happened to us in the past. This had not happened to these people in the past, and yet they had faith to believe that God could do that. And I believe that our lack of faith many times quenches the working of God's Spirit in our midst. Matthew 13, verse 58 says, And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Have you ever wondered if the reason we have not seen as many signs and wonders in America as you see in third world countries is because we have been so infected with our scientific world and life view that excludes anything that is in the supernatural. We lack faith. Christ said in Mark 6, 5, or the gospel there says, Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hand on a few sick people and healed them. And he goes on to marvel at their lack of faith. Faith or lack of faith, I believe, has a great deal to do with the kind of effect and the kind of ministry that the Spirit does in a congregation. In Galatians 3.5 it says, Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Do you have to be a super Christian to see miracles in your life? Or is it something that can just be received by faith? Is it something that his sovereign power produces? On Easter Sunday evening, after the evening service, we want to be talking to you about some of the opportunities that are before us as a congregation, some of which may appear to be absolutely impossible, and we don't have God's guidance yet on what the Lord wants us to do. But I want you to come to that meeting prepared to be trusting the Lord, to be guiding and asking for His working in our midst. Well, let's take a look at the kinds of impossibilities this passage lists. It's not just the fiery furnace that they're saved from. There's other impossibilities as well. First of all, the impossible political uh, situation. If Nebuchadnezzar is against us, who can be for us? Now, that's almost a blasphemous inversion of Paul's statement, if God is for us, who can be against us? And yet that is exactly the kind of attitude that many Christians have had uh, toward the ability of God to deal with political impossibilities like former communism. (laughs) And it took uh, a moving of God's Spirit and stirring up faith in people. I believe it started with Campus Crusade. Of, of people believing, yes, communism can fall, the Iron Curtain can crumble, and as a prayer movement began to start flowing from that, uh, that time, within a year, uh, the Iron Curtain had crumbled. 
God continues to do impossible things. God is a God who continues to be in charge of politics even to this day. And in Eastern Europe, the gospel is spreading like crazy. Another impossibility was surviving the kind of persecution that was decreed here. Uh, verse 19, the Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. The expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore, he spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. You know, many times we get absolutely discouraged because of how bad things have gotten. But, you know, God delights in letting things get bad precisely so that his glory can be greater. Don't be discouraged by that. When things heat up seven times worse, realize that our God is the God who is greater than impossible persecutions that come against us. And you can look at Zambia and Ethiopia and, and Romania and so many countries and you can see God is greater than the persecution. In verse 20, it highlights the impossible human element there. Uh, here are uh, uh, these three men bound. They cannot run away because there's mighty men who have laid hold of them. And yet it's the mighty men who are slain and the three who walk free. And Corrie ten Boom has told of men that they were fearful of during World War II and after the war, those men were weak and helpless. In fact, it was people like Corrie ten Boom in her home and other people who ministered to these individuals. God continues to be able to deal with impossible human situations as well. Uh, fourth, impossible bondage. I have known Christians who have been absolutely convinced they will never be able to get over the bondage to an addiction or some sin, besetting sin that they have had, that uh, they've given up any hope on that. Now, these were not bound by sins, but they were bound by cords. And if you look in verse 25, you will see that those cords must have been freed because they were loosed and walking unbound. And many times God allows the heat of persecution to get to the level where it frees us of some of the bondage and the baggage that keeps us from serving the Lord as we ought to serve. Persecution is not always a bad thing. Uh, I would never pray for persecution. You know, Paul commands us that we should be praying for peace in an empire, but uh, I want the effect of God's working in our lives, whatever the means that God might use, and God certainly can break uh, the, the bondage that um, is, is given. Verses 20 through 21 describe the impossibility of violating physical laws. Well, the only reason we have physics is because God is there upholding all things by the word of his power. So he can change it any time he so chooses. But take a look at these verses. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were with his army, or who were in his army, to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. And then these men who were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and those are things which physics would say should be burned up, should be destroyed. And there are other garments who were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Okay? Can God continue to do such impossibilities? Well, I believe that he not only can, but that he delights in doing that. And I want to share just a couple of stories that have happened in my own lifetime to show how God deals with the impossibilities of, uh, of changing physical laws. As uh, most of you know, my parents uh, were missionaries in Ethiopia, and they have all kinds of stories, but let me just give you one. Uh, one time when they were going through the winding mountains of Ethiopia, and their, their uh, roads were just like cut out of the, out of the mountain, all of a sudden, at one point, the whole ground fell out from underneath them, and they were riding 
for the next several seconds on thin air. And when they got to the other side on solid ground, their hearts <laughs> pounding, you can believe it, they looked back, there was nothing there, no road. They were driving on thin air. Does our God continue to uphold the law of gravity and bypass the law of gravity? He absolutely does. He is a God of miracles. Corrie ten Boom tells of her experience of the never-emptying vitamin bottle. Okay, and she was wanting to keep it, you know, within their little circle, but Betsy, she was distributing it everywhere because there were other people who had needs, and this vitamin bottle just kept going and going and going, and it never ran out until the day that they got those extra two bottles of vitamins, I think it was. And uh, uh, there are many people who have testified to similar experiences in their own lives. It's happened to me. It happened in British Columbia, uh, and the Lord is gracious to my foolishness. But when I was out in the back country roads of British Columbia, they have uh, their gas stations many times are hours and hours apart. And so they warn you, you got to fill up. For some reason, I did not fill up at the last place that you were supposed to fill up. And my heart was in my mouth when I realized what had happened because I'd driven this car and I'd run out of gas twice before. You know, absent-minded professor, this uh, <laughs> kind of stuff happens to me. And when it hits, it, when it hits empty, it's gone. You got to walk. I drove for over an hour on an empty tank of gas and it did not run out until I got to the gas station and it stopped and I coasted right up to the, uh, right up to the spigots where the, the gas comes out. God continues to work in those ways. I have three verifiable stories which have happened in my life of uh, people who have come to life after rigor mortis has set in. Uh, where this has been verifiable. One of them was stinking already, uh, was beginning to decompose. Uh, this happened uh, in uh, the time of John Knox. Uh, John Knox's friend uh, prayed over this one individual, and it was three days later, and the physicians had already checked the person, and uh, th there was no way he was coming back. You see, our God works in the areas of setting aside physical laws because the only reason there can be physics is because God is there upholding all things. We need to have faith that God can do this. And then, of course, is the impossible timing. We sometimes act as if God is not in control of our time. Verse 22, Therefore, because the king's command was urgent. <laughs> when do we tend to panic and uh, lose faith? You know, it's when urgent situations come up and we become fearful. And yet many of you have testified to the fact that God's timing is absolutely perfect. Now here it may have seemed as if God was too slow. He was not on time, and yet God wanted them to go through that. And we can be sure that God can deal with the impossible situations of timing as well. He continues to be a God of miracles. Any amens? He is a God of miracles. Now I want us to be committed to praying that this God of miracles would be exalted in our city. Not that we would be exalted as a, as a church, but that God, that God would be exalted. And I've given several prayer requests there. Let's pray, first of all, that God's presence would be so real in our city that the heathen would be astonished. Look at verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He was astonished. You know, sometimes it takes a powerful moving of God's Spirit before the heathens sit up and they take notice of the fact that God is on His throne as He said that He was. Uh, you read through some of the documents for the first and the second great awakenings in America and you will see some very remarkable things that happened at that time to make the people sit up and take notice. I think all that the world can sit up and take notice of right now 
is that uh, we've got all kinds of denominations that bicker and fight against each other. We're powerless. We have very little impact upon our society. And I want that changed. I want to see God exalted, and I want to see His kingdom going forward in a powerful way. And we need to pray to that end. The second thing that we could pray for is that as a result of seeing God's miracles, they would talk to each other about it and acknowledge the fact that God is working. Uh, Take a look at the second half of uh, verse 24. He asks, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? He answered and said to the king, true, O king. Think of the difference if the unicameral started freely talking about God and the way that God is working. I think that uh, Christ can be very easily ignored because of the nature and the state, the poor state of the church today. But when God begins moving, like he did, and people committed to holiness like these men were. And he begins to see, they begin to see the effects of God's Spirit working in our land. They will have to acknowledge him. They will have no choice. Uh, point D is a point that I long to see a far greater manifestation of, that God's presence is so real and powerful in the midst of our worship, in our congregation, that when a heathen comes in, he says, whoa, there is something out of the ordinary going on here. God is present in our midst. Take a look at verse 25, the presence of God there with them. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God, or some versions have it as a son of the gods. Uh, We're not for sure if this was the pre-incarnate form of uh, Jesus Christ, but it may very well have been. Certainly God has promised that he will be with us, Isaiah says, in the fire and in the flood. Hebrews says he will never leave us nor forsake us. Now, we believe that by faith, but what an incredible thing it would be if God's presence was so manifest in our midst that the kind of effect that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 14 would happen. He talks about just one of the miraculous things that happened in the first century and the effects that it had upon the people then. He said, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is judged by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so, falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Could the congregation... Anybody who came into this congregation say that God is truly among us? Or they come in and say, well, it's another boring, another boring meeting. Would there be a sense? We need to pray that God would be manifested here so that it would be a testimony to all who walk in to our congregation. And again, it is not something we can work up through emotionalism or anything like that. It is something only the sovereign moving of God's Spirit can bring. But we need to pray for it. Another thing we can pray for is that the only effect persecution would have upon us is to break our bondage. Uh, Verse 25 says, uh, look, I see four men loose. I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire. These men were uh, delivered not only from the fire, but they were delivered from those bonds which had held them. And you know, when uh, Christians are persecuted, Uh, They are delivered either into heaven or delivered for further service down here. But there are various ways in which we can be delivered, delivered from the bondage of sin. And we can be praying that anything that binds us from service would be broken by God. Pray that spirit-filled Christians would be able to testify 
to God's greatness. Verse 26 shows to Nebuchadnezzar how obviously great God is. Now, people may wonder, what's the point? What's the use of having miracles? Well, there are many different purposes, but here is another one that is given. It shows how puny and out of control we are, and it shows how great and how awesome and how in control God is. Verse 26, Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Again. (coughs) People are often willing to cast Christians away from them, and they will, even during times when God's Spirit is moving, But here's a situation where the heathen wanted to cast these men away from them, but now they are attracted to them and they want to find out more about the greatness of this God. Pray that the enemy would have no power over us. In verse 27, these officials saw that Satan was not successful. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. Get that phrase. Fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Again, people are skeptical. Can God do uh, those kinds of things in the physical realm? But that is exactly what Christ promised would happen to those who believe. Not just the apostles. He said, all these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up servants, serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now, that's not an invitation to snake handling. <clears throat> Some of those services where, they, where they, they test God, you know, they're picking up rattlesnakes and things like that and test God. You remember what Christ said when Satan asked him to do that? Satan said, jump off the temple. You know, this would be a great way to glorify yourself. Jump off the temple. The Bible says God will pick up your feet, and Christ says you shall not tempt the Lord your God. These men were not tempting God. They did not jump into the furnace. But let me tell you, if you are in the middle of God's will, doing what God has called you to do, there is no place safer than that. I think Ron Dotzler is exactly right when he says, North Omaha is not the most dangerous place to minister. He says the most dangerous place to minister is when you are out of God's will. If our church is in one part of a city, when God has called us to be in another part of the city, that is the most dangerous place to be. And as we walk in the Spirit, Satan's power can be completely blocked. In Luke 10, Christ gave the 70 disciples authority, he says, over all the power of the enemy. It was all-inclusive. Pray that unbelievers would bless God as Nebuchadnezzar did in verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the name of, uh, excuse me, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I'm longing and looking forward to that day, but we need to be praying that more and more that would be happening in our own culture, in our own city, that the heathen who presently are cursing God would be blessing Him, blessing His name. And God's power can achieve that. It can achieve that. Pray that angelic ministry would increase. The angel uh, mentioned in verse 28 uh, maybe the, the messenger of the covenant, it may be another angel, we're not told, but certainly the scriptures make a big deal about angelic ministry. Uh, I have recorded here that at least 273 references to angels in the Bible. 
And Hebrews 1 says they were given for our benefit, for our benefit. They are called, quote, ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. That's us. And yet an angelic ministry is almost completely ignored in evangelical circles, and it ought not to be. It ought not to be. I think verse 28 outlines some of the most tremendous benefits that we should be praying for, that our Christian lives would be stirred up to total, unreserved devotion to God. Uh, Look, first of all, at who is saying this in verse 28. It's Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar talks about these people as being servants. Servants of the Most High God. Would the world, if they looked on at us, see us as having servants' hearts, as being servants? I think servanthood is at the very heart of what it means to be a disciple of God. And we need to be praying that there would be less and less self-seeking and more and more servanthood in our congregation. He goes on to testify that that God had delivered His servants who trusted in Him. And what total trust they had. My prayer is that our church would be a church that has trust, has faith in God, faith to do impossibilities. He goes on to say, and have frustrated the king's word and have yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. And we too can pray that uh, the, the purposes of the enemy would be totally frustrated. Uh, We can pray that we would be willing and ready day by day to yield our bodies, even unto death. That's what Romans 12 is all about. It says, on a day-by-day basis, we need to be offering up our bodies and saying, Lord, take my mind, take my will, take my gifts, my failures, everything. Take my hands and make these be used to your glory. I want you to use me, Lord. We need to be doing that. And it says that they serve God alone. They worship God alone. We should have a single-minded devotion to the Lord. But we shouldn't neglect verse 29 just because it's controversial in Christian circles. There are many people who say that it's not the state's uh, purpose anymore uh, to uphold biblical civil laws. That was just for Israel. But uh, I think all you have to do is read through uh, um, uh, Ezra, Uh, and uh, uh, Esther and some of the other Old Testament books that talk about heathen nations implementing those laws, and you'll see that is completely false. Now, certainly, he did not understand yet. He's still a pagan. He does not understand yet uh, what the biblical penalties are, but he knows intuitively he must be under the rule of God. He knows that intuitively. And then pray finally that Christians would use their gifts to serve our city and country when God opens up the doors. Verse 30, Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Proverbs tells us that the city rejoices when the righteous rule. And we need to pray that there would be more righteous people who understand biblical law, who would be able to rule uh, in our society, that God may be exalted that God may be glorified in our own lives, that God may be glorified in our church, but also in the city of Omaha. I desire God's glory to be lifted up, and I invite you to join with me in believing that this is not only possible, this is something God desires, and this is something God will do, that you would come and ask God to give you an unrelenting faith to expect great things from God and to attempt great things for Him in this city. And may He receive all the glory. Amen.